0: The word of the Lord from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 and verses 16 through 18. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. The text for our Gospel proclamation comes from the epistle, the second letter to Timothy from Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and serves as the basis of our theme for the 20th Sunday after Pentecost, knowing what he fought for. Paul is dead. The haunting words stated clearly on the Beatles' strong strawberry fields forever. This, and a host of other clues, led many Beatles fans to believe that Paul had died and was replaced by a lookalike imposter. Shenanigans on top of publicity stunts fueled by conspiracy trolls, gave this rumor wings. Although the wider population likely saw it for what it was. Just another way to increase record sales. Or maybe more like bored Beatles that wanted to have fun stirring up controversy amongst their fans. I never knew about it until college myself in the late 80s, But distinctly remember the time we talked about this with my roommates. And one of them pointed out that in the song Strawberry Fields, you could clearly hear someone say, Paul is dead. So, we huddled around the hi-fi stereo in our apartment and carefully listened to the volume turned up and played on a record. And there it was, plain as day. Paul is dead. I gotta admit, it was chilling to hear it. I can just imagine how it sounded to anyone who did not have the benefit of knowing he was in fact alive and healthy for years after, like we did, but were in those very days unfaltering fans of their beloved Beatles. Now imagine, if you will, the congregations at Ephesus, Thessalonica, Galatia, Troas, Corinth, and Miletus, Hearing Paul's words today at the beginning of our epistle lesson, saying, The time of my departure has come, which the Apostle Paul seems to believe is quite near. For the listeners hearing his lesson, maybe they wondered, Is Paul dead? After all, if that is what he is writing about, and so much time is needed to get correspondence from city to city, it's reasonable to believe that they were almost certain that Paul is dead as they listened to his hauntingly brief final words. In fact, Paul was martyred in 68 AD and this text is dated 68 AD. So by the time they heard the letter, he most certainly was dead. So today... We will read this letter together with the intensity of college students huddled around the hi-fi listening, knowing what he is saying is very important because our beloved Paul is dead. and What he says right before he died matters more than ever before. Have you ever read the letters of someone who passed right after they wrote them? Some time ago, my mother was reading the diary of her mother, who had passed away quite a while ago. What she took from that was real insight into what really mattered to my grandmother when she was alive. It sounded standard to me, sometimes a little out of touch with how things are today, but definitely interesting for a historian like myself but I could tell it was a real walk down memory lane for my mother and that she even learned things she didn't know about grandma and was getting to know her like she never knew her before. These diaries, letters, and journals that we discover after someone's death often become like last will and testaments as to how we will see them for years to come. And it makes me wonder, in the age of media information overload, just how some will perceive us after we're gone based on what we podcasted, posted online, or socially participated in virtually. If someone has access to us and our information when we are gone, what stories are we writing now that will be analyzed and determined who we will be seen as until we meet again in heaven? Paul uses interesting language that shows us what we know on the surface was not everything that meets the eye. First, Paul uses ancient language that describes his departure from the world as akin to unyoking an animal, loosening shackles and restraints, or like loosening the ropes of a tent or the moorings of a ship at dock, readying to lay down the paws that is life or the restraints of human living. But even though it has that troubling negative picture of stagnation or slavery, Paul finds a way to rejoice in that difficulty that was his life, and likens it to coming out victorious after a hard-fought fight. Have you ever talked to a real fitness freak that loves to talk about their gains? You know, the ones that say, you gotta give 110 Percent, Got to invest some sweat equity. They played really hard and left it all on the field. So these are some pretty familiar examples to us. And likewise, Paul uses familiar terms to the people of his day in the context of the original Olympics. Paul describes his life as having satisfaction in the world, knowing he did his best. And Paul knew the one thing necessary in life is staying power. And that's what many people lack. Like the runner from the Battle of Marathon, who ran day and night to proclaim victory over the Greeks, of the the Greeks over the Persians, declaring, Rejoice! gasping, we have conquered! And then he fell dead. When Paul said he kept the faith, It was in the spirit of the Olympic ideal of the ritual oath made by the best athletes in the world, where they swore that they had trained for at least 10 months and they would not resort to cheating. Oh, how we love our athletes when we know they compete on the field of fair play. Oh, how our hearts can be broken when we find out they used performance-enhancing drugs, undermining tactics, and purchased the favor of the judges. Paul taps that highest ideal of Christian witness and insists he took no shortcuts where his Savior's Christ was concerned. So Paul concludes, there is a crown for him and it says, well done from the lips of our Lord when he sees him in heaven. And it's a good thing because Paul faced the preliminary to his execution all alone. It's a shame, really, how many in our community die alone. I'm not saying anyone is to blame, but older people who live alone can frequently be found by the police before they are found by family. It was such a heartbreaking reality for me as a pastor when I first started out 22 years ago. It was a small congregation, so I made every effort to be bedside when a member died. And 100% of the time, I was at the family's nurse notified me that it was going to happen soon. But then I discovered that nursing homes with no next of kin don't tell anyone, even if I left a calling card by their bed to do so. I wouldn't get to see them at the end. I wouldn't get to do a funeral for them. And I didn't even know where they were laid to rest. They truly, like Paul, Alone, But in reading Paul's letter to Timothy, I realized that being alone is not what it appears to be. Paul in our lesson today is so reminiscent of Psalm 22. Why hast thou forsaken me? There is none to help. Save me from the lion's mouth. The kingdom is the Lord's. Undoubtedly, the words of King David's psalm were on the mind of this former Pharisee. But as lonely as it may seem, even though all had forsaken him, Paul ultimately knew the Lord was with him. God said he would be with Paul until the end of the world. And if doing right means to be alone, as Joan of Arc said, it is better to be alone with God. Paul never forgot to proclaim Christ. He even used the Roman court to share the salvation won by Jesus on the cross, who proved to be true because Jesus rose from the dead to raise sinners like you, me, and Paul too. In fact, Paul was so busy proclaiming Christ, he forgot about the danger. Did you ever know someone like that? Maybe it was an EMT a fireman, a policeman, or a nurse, you saw them in action because they were the only ones running toward the danger rather than fleeing the area in abject terror. I would love to think that I would be that guy, but the rare times I was faced with real danger, I screamed like a little girl fleeing in terror rather than forgetting about the danger altogether. The ones that are doing that on a daily basis Remind me of the one that was never afraid of anything, even though he knew the pain he would be suffering excruciatingly out of the cross rather than leaving us there instead. A wise writer once said, it is always better to embrace danger in a moment and safety forever rather than embrace safety in a moment and receive eternal Jeopardy. Jesus, the wisest man ever, embraced a lifetime of danger, all of humanity's pain for all time, and all of our sin jeopardizing his earthly dwelling. So our life of sin would be redeemed in Jesus' hours on the cross so we could live eternally with him. When you know Paul knew that. You know why he fought like he did. Amen. Now may that peace that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus always. Amen.